You are listening to Shout for Libraries in Edmonton on CJSR. We're a group of library students at the University of Alberta who are here to delve into topics such as censorship, freedom of expression, and social responsibility. I'm Marin. And I'm Michelle. And we'll be your hosts for this half hour of library-centric radio. Thanks for tuning in. On each episode of Shout for Libraries, we explore a different issue in library and information studies. In this episode, we'll be looking at copyright, and specifically the way that one University of Alberta librarian is fighting to change it in order to make the Canadian government more transparent to its citizens. Shout for Libraries own Chris Joseph spoke to Amanda Wachrick, the copyright librarian for the University of Alberta, to find out how the Crown copyright law keeps Canadians in the dark. Before we get into the interview, though, Michelle is going to give us a brief introduction to copyright in Canada. Michelle? Thanks, Marin. The following episode contains information on copyright. This is legal information only, not legal advice. If you require legal advice, please discuss the matter with a professional. First off, a definition. The term copyright refers to a bundle of rights that accrues to the creator of a work. These may be works of drama, music, literature, or performance, and rights can include publication, sale, broadcast, and so forth, depending on the type of work created. A person does not copyright an idea per se, but rather the expression of an idea, which is what we mean when we say a work. The rights accrued to these works happen whether or not they're registered, and they may be assigned to a third party, such as a publisher in the case of a book. Copyright in Canada lasts for 50 years after the death of the author. In Mexico, the term is 100 years after the death, and in the U.S. it's 70. But we'll see what Disney has to say about that as they get closer to losing some of their more lucrative properties. And now, a quick and dirty history of copyright. Most histories of copyright begin with the Statute of Anne in 1710, but that's boring and didn't kill anybody, so let's start with Ireland's Copyright War of 560. One day, a monk named Columba visited his buddy monk, Finian, and secretly copied a psalter from his library. Finian figured that since he owned the original, the copy of the book belonged to him. But Columba disagreed because he was an open-source kind of guy. They took the case to King Giarmid MacKiarvale, who agreed that the book belonged to Finian. Columba successfully appealed this decision to the court of raising an army to murder 3,000 people and overthrow the king. Because we have a great interview coming up for you, I've limited myself to telling you two additional fun facts about this story. One, both Columba and Finian were sainted and together constitute one-sixth of the Twelve Apostles of Ireland. And two, after moving to Scotland, Columba is notably stated to have fought the Loch Ness Monster. Skip, 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 it's the end of the 1600s and all printing in England is owned by a publishing guild called the Worshipful Company of Stationers. They're pretty happy about this until the statute that gives them their printing monopoly and censorship powers runs out and Parliament refuses to renew it. They continue to be unhappy about this for about 15 years until the publishers manage to convince the government to protect their power by arguing that it's necessary to protect the rights of authors. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's the same argument they've been using for 300 years. Enter the Statute of Anne in 1710. This statute created a copyright term of 14 years, which could be renewed once, and stated that printing rights to the work accrued to the author but could be assigned to a publisher. After the copyright expired, the work would fall into public domain and could be freely used by anyone. 62 years later, the House of Lords voted against the creation of common law copyright as a means of preventing the creation of perpetual copyright, ensuring that most of what you need to know about copyright law can be found in statutes and treaties. The next major development was inspired by everyone's favorite miserable playwright, Victor Hugo. It's called the Berne Convention, a treaty from 1886 which requires member states to protect the copyright of individuals of all member states in the same way they would protect the copyright of their own citizens for a period of no shorter than 50 years after the death of the author. 
Being a British colony, Canada had to sign the Berne Convention in 1886, though we unsuccessfully tried to wiggle out of it in 1889 until Britain angrily cleared its throat in our direction. We got mad at some of the revisions later and refused to accede to the most recent revision, which took place in 1971, until 1998. Our reasoning for being difficult can generally be summed up as having a smaller and less lucrative printing industry, which was a net importer of copyright works, and our developing desire for sovereignty and the need to make decisions independently of political and economic superpowers, namely Britain and the United States. Canada finally got its own Copyright Act in 1924, and it remained largely the same until 1988, when a number of societal changes began to force us to modernize. The main issues at play were, of course, advancing technology and the addition of new treaties like NAFTA that dealt with issues of intellectual property. Overall, the trend has been to expand the purview of copyright and to increase penalties for violations. In 2012, a mandatory five-year review was instituted to ensure that copyright law remained up-to-date in a world of fast-paced innovation. And hey, that means it's copyright review time. The essential purpose of copyright in Canada is to balance the rights of copyright holders and the consumers of their work with an eye to achieving the best possible outcome for the general public. So, what does this goal put on the menu for reform? Michael Geist of the University of Ottawa has pointed out that innovation, science, and economic development wants to fix the fact that copyright laws limit the data sets used in creating better artificial intelligences. There are also concerns over the lack of efficiency and transparency from the Copyright Board of Canada, which is maybe less exciting, but still pretty important. Add into the mix the renegotiation of NAFTA, and maybe the TPP just for kicks, and Canadian copyright experts might be in for a headache of a year. This brings us to Chris's interview with the University of Alberta's own copyright librarian, Amanda Wakaruk, who will be explaining how the policy of Crown copyright fails to uphold the purpose of Canadian copyright and why this affects you. My name is Amanda Wakaruk, and I'm the copyright librarian at the University of Alberta. So, copyright librarian. It's two words that a lot of people, even in the library profession, probably don't imagine go together. So <laughs> tell me a bit about the role of a copyright librarian and what does your work actually entail? Well, my work is actually not that dissimilar from most public service librarians on campus. I spend a lot of time developing and offering services and programs that are geared towards helping people acquire or develop information literacy skills. Obviously, as a copyright librarian, my focus is on copyright, so that means um, offering workshops that are focused on academic units or administrative units on campus, or providing guest lectures to specific courses on campus. So I have a lot of meetings with faculty members, graduate students about copyright issues specific to their work. Now, copyright librarianship is also very different and I think the obvious one is having the sensibility around the law and being interested in learning about changes in case law and legislation related to copyright. I'm continually leaning on my early days when I was very interested in law librarianship. I need to be able to talk about the law but not provide legal advice and that's a certain sensibility that's not as acute in other areas of librarianship with the exception of legal librarianship. I'm often working with uh, academics and grad students who are actively engaged in both creating and using copyright materials. So those conversations can become very interesting because copyright law is about uh, providing a balance to incentivize the creation of new works but also support the public good through the distribution of those 
works. So on its surface, those things can seem to be very much at odds, especially when you're talking about uh, commercial use of work, etc. So the conversations can be very interesting and engaging. And often in a classroom setting, that means um, provide, talking about case law where the class is completely divided on how the decision should have came out. You're not really op operating in a legal counsel capacity. And essentially you're a bridge, which is very much connected to sort of the core value of librarianship. Is that what it attracted you to the role? Well, it's kind of an interesting story because I, I worked as a government information librarian for most of my career. And I ran into barriers related to copyright in my work as a government information librarian and wanted to learn more about it. Took a couple courses and I realized, you know, there's a lot more to copyright than what I need to do my work as a government information librarian better. Specifically, the, the role of copyright law in mediating the relationship between user and creator and how that can incentivize the creation of new works, how creative works are uh, essential to a, a high-functioning society. And, you know, we all know that, I think, inherently. That's kind of an obvious thing. But what does copyright do to incentivize that, to encourage it, to build a stronger society? And how do we um, balance the incentivization of new works, i.e. giving creators the rights they need to want to create more? And here I'm talking mostly about economic rights, although the moral rights are really important too. So that's one side of that balance. The other side is making sure that the public has access to these works, that they can reproduce them in fair ways. So I, I think that when members of the public think about uh, like the Copyright Act in Canada, if they do at all, but they think about <laughs> copyright, they probably think about things like uh, internet piracy or massive copying of uh, probably mostly these days digital things. Uh, they may also know about bypassing copyright protection for uh, personal or other purposes. Uh, but in an academic library context, are there any other sort of specific challenges to copyright librarianship? Uh, in my work, I see a lot of challenges tied to copyright chill, which can be defined in a number of ways, but for me here on campus, uh, I think of it as, as a fear to do something because you're afraid of the copyright implications. And with students and instructors, I see a lot of hesitancy to rely on fair dealing. Uh, there's a lot of fear around act using rights that are available to them in the first place. And my job is to help alleviate some of that chill. Uh, I also see professors, uh, researchers on campus that are uh, unsure of publishing agreements and are a little bit frustrated by having to sign away their copyright or sign away a lot of their rights. Uh, and in, in all of those cases, those challenges, a little bit of copyright education can go a long way. I've had a lot of professors over the last few years that I've worked with who've happily come to um, make small changes in publishing agreements that allow them to do what they need just by asking, just by talking. Publishers are much more open to making changes than you might think. I think higher level, uh, speaking nationally, the Copyright Act is uh, just, it's under review, it's a five-year mandated review, and it'll be interesting to see what challenges come out of that process. Uh, out of the gates, we do know that some organizations have been lobbying pretty actively to pull back 
some of the amendments made to fair dealing in the last review. Despite the, the, the hesitancy to use it, we do rely on fair dealing institutionally. There's also been talk of moving the copyright term from 50 years past life of the author in most cases to 70, and that's pressure from international trade agreements. So those are two things that have been identified by CAUT and most likely other groups uh, as, as places we want to preserve some existing uh, terms, some existing provisions in the Act. Um, just to clarify, I don't know how many of your listeners know, CAUT is the Canadian Association of University Teachers, and they do have a fair copyright campaign that they've just launched. I'd encourage people to take a look. Um, another challenge with the Act being reviewed uh, is, and I don't know if I should say it's a challenge, but something I'd like to see and others would like to see addressed is the digital locks issue. Um, right now, as speaking from a library perspective, it, it's uh, unclear it's, and some say illegal to do uh, fair work if a digital lock is present. Yeah. So let's say a DVD is degrading, right, and we cannot buy a copy of it new. Can we make a copy of that? I mean, the current exceptions would say yes, but there's a digital lock. And other provisions in the Act say you can't break that digital lock. So that's a real barrier. It's uh, preventing and delaying, in some cases, preventing digitization work from happening in libraries, which means cultural losses is likely. That's a challenge that I'm hoping the Act will help address. Another barrier that is very real is, of course, the Crown Copyright issue. So yeah, that brings us to the like the juicy stuff, which is Crown Copyright. So this is all related to Section 12 of the Copyright Act, which is about Crown Copyright. Can you just give a brief description of what that is so we have some context? Section 12 states that anything the government produces or publishes is uh, subject to Crown Copyright, in short. Uh, this is a really antiquated provision. In essence, it's, it's giving the government the sole right to reproduce, produce, distribute, etc., um, any works it creates. This is something that, as far as I can tell, was basically copied and pasted from the UK's 1911 Act. On the ground, what it means is that if you or I, as a Canadian citizen, resident, taxpayer, wants to reproduce or redistribute a government work, we need to ask permission or be knowledgeable enough about the Act to feel confident that we can rely on uh, an infringement defense or user right. So that's a pretty high level of literacy to be an active member of a democracy. Section 12 applies to both unpublished and published works. And just as an aside, Jean Dryden, um, a PhD based in Toronto, I think, wrote a really wonderful piece about Crown Copyright in a recent policy options issue. And she makes the very uh, apt uh, observation that uh, Section 12 is the only place we have perpetual copyright because of that unpublished um, specification. So um, I'm talking about published works. In the, I had a petition that went through the House of Commons Clerk of Petitions last year, and in that petition I was asking that all works published and made publicly available be in the public domain. That is, they, that they are no longer protected by copyright upon being made available to the public. During the Harper government, 
they instituted a de deficit reduction action plan that served to remove uh, quite a bit of material from the government websites. I think on a previous episode of this podcast, Michael McNally talked about, you know, I think he said 50% or more. He should know. He has tons of ATIP documents on this. I worked with him to try to identify just how much was being removed. So it was in that context of sort of mass removals of content from government websites that uh, myself and other universities in this country tried to web harvest content because we knew it was being removed. And there's nothing inherently wrong with cleaning up your websites. I want to make that clear. We were never trying to, to stop basic maintenance, but it was material that was being produced by our government, being made available openly, and then being removed. And we knew that was happening, so we were trying to harvest it. Sometimes permission was asked. And when it, we asked permission to do this, sometimes we would get a yes, and often we would get a no. And it was that inconsistency and that refusal to uh, allow us to do our work that um, sort of sparked my interest in Crown copyright as an issue, because that's what was being cited as the reason for not being able to harvest this material. So I know that we had, uh, at least federally, like a Crown Copyright Licensing Office until 2013. Do you think that some of the challenges with administering or understanding the, the issues of how to interpret Section 12 is as a result of that office not being around anymore? They decentralized the function, and CCL was very helpful to me <laughs> and my colleagues because they would uh, provide clarification. Um, so while some of the confusion, I think, is certainly related to the decentralization post-2013, I think there's a, a more fundamental fundamental uh, reason to review this provision. In, in my opinion, the government has a moral imperative to communicate with its citizenry, and communicate means more than just uh, broadcast. Yeah. It means allowing citizens to engage with the works of their government, and that might mean reproducing them, that might mean redistributing them. In our case, it meant acting as stewards. And I should also mention that, you know, it was, I think, the late 1890s when the U.S. government recognized recognize the importance of access to government information for a functioning democracy and basically made their federal public works public domain by default. It's really interesting because as, as you're talking I'm also thinking about, as I know you've written about the Canadian government's commitment to open government, capital O, capital G, and they seem to be uh, bandying that line about. And I also know, I don't know if you're following the the discourse now about Bill 58, which is the review of the access to information, uh, where it seems as though the, the current debate in the, in the House of Commons is centered around the Liberal government basically saying that they don't need to uh, worry about access to information because everything is going to be open. <laughs> and so if everything's open, then you don't need access to anything. Uh, and I'm wondering if that same line I kind of get the sense that it's being used almost as a defense against having to change the Copyright Act because you can basically go, well, if we have a commitment to open government, but when it actually gets down to applying it, that there doesn't seem to be the devil's in the details, so to speak. The devil's in the details. That's that's the phrase, isn't it? I mean, a big part of open government is accountability. That's one of the principles behind the open government initiative. And I'm speaking about the open government partnership worldwide now as well. And their their definition of open, OGP's definition of open, um, if you follow enough of their material, it includes the ability to reuse and reproduce work freely. And the Canadian government should be proud of the open data initiatives that they've, they've instigated. But when you look at publications, it's, it's a very small subset that has that open government license. 
very small. I think last time I checked, it was like under 200 or something. And we're talking, you know, easily a quarter of a million publications that could it could apply to. So yeah, the devil's in the details, and it, it's been quite frustrating. And again, working in this in government information for you know many years, it was it was really frustrating because again, this is the Harper government. They uh, announced a virtual library that was going to do this open stewardship role, and we were very excited. And uh, open government license was announced. We were very excited. All this sounded wonderful. And then fast forward, what, seven, eight years, and fewer than 200 publications are actually available through that open government license. Wow. I, I'm a big supporter of open government and open by default. I don't see where Crown Copyright serves that mission. It doesn't, it seems antithetical, really, to the goals of open government. Mm -hmm. A Crown Copyright petition that you um basically helped instigate last year was running, running through May through September. You got, what is it, three or four times the minimum required number of signatures to have this pass through? And the, 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 the gist of the petition was basically saying, add 12.1 of the Copyright Act, which basically says that any published works by the government would be uh, free from copyright, right? So then we know that petition was submitted in, in, uh, at the end of September, and the government had a response in December. Um, and the response was... Um, uh, what was your reaction to the response when you got it? I should say that uh, the government reiterated their commitment to open government, and they basically said um, uh, through their response that the issue was complicated and uh, that they were interested in making sure that uh, agencies had the ability to enable cost recovery, and there's some uh, notes about uh, quality assurance and some other interesting terms in there. So what was your reaction when you got that response? Well, I... I was surprised it was so short, first of all. Um, I was pleased that, that there were two responses, uh, one from Heritage, one from ISED. Uh, and I read them very carefully. They were almost identical, yeah. I, I, uh, but not quite. Um, all of the differences seem insubstantive. I was heartened to see the open government, the affirmation of that. That was good. And I was heartened to see that there's recognition that this may be part of the review of the Act. I would have liked to have seen stronger language there. I was confused by some of the other things that you, you mentioned, specifically the reference to complexity. Um, the Copyright Act is complex. Copyright is complicated. It has to be to try to achieve this balance. I don't see how Crown Copyright is any more complicated than that. Uh, the references to cost recovery uh, are certainly in line with what we've been hearing from multiple governments over many years. Uh, I'm not convinced that we should be relying on economic incentive to have open communication with our government. That doesn't parse for me. I don't want, I'm paying taxes, I'm happy to pay taxes. Um, I don't know why I need to pay more to learn about what my government does. But even if you accept the idea that we need cost recovery, let's just pretend, why not make things that are uh, paid for open and available? So that's one thing. Uh, it also seems at odds with the, the aims of open government, right? Cost recovery, it's a barrier. It's a barrier. Mm -hmm. So if you're open by default, it doesn't parse. Um, the other issue that, that really confused me was the accuracy and quality. Um, I'm not sure copyright has ever addressed those issues. Uh, quality, how? Quality is kind of a, a bit of a red herring in my opinion. 
Uh, accuracy, again, I don't see how copyright deals with accuracy. The only way that might make sense is if you, um, you, know, you waive all the infringement exceptions that the Act provides to people which would be illegal, right? The only way that accuracy makes sense is if you have complete control over every reproduction, and that would negate fair dealing. Also, um, uh, you had talked about earlier the um, access to information legislation, and uh, in the response to the petition, there was some mention of balance, right? That is where you see the balance for government information. I mean, I get it. There are things that are too sensitive to be distributed. Yeah, nobody's saying there isn't from our copyright community anyway, from the government information uh, copyright community. Uh, but the Access to Information Act is where you find that balance between access and security, mm. not copyright. Mm. So, yeah, I was a little confused by a few things, but hopefully the review of the Act will allow for some of this information to be brought to the fore and for experts to, yet again, provide their, um, uh, their input. Uh, I was speaking with uh, Michael McNally uh, in the summer about the Crown Copyright Petition in particular, and, and uh, the general agreement among people who were talking about the issue was like, well, this, this is like, this is t-ball. <laughs> like, this feels like something that should be low-hanging fruit. I mean, the petition was articulated very well, the case was very clearly made, and it seems like a, it seems like a no-brainer. So at this point, it, it's nice to hear that you're hopeful. <laughs> but I'm wondering, what are the next steps? Like, how, where do we go from here? Well, the, um Hopefully the government will announce public consultation opportunities soon mm -hmm. as part of the review of the Act. And I um, am hopeful that many librarians and members of the public, everyone really who cares, uh, will, will submit something to the review process, also contact their MPs about this. That's very important. And I'm, I'm waiting to see what that looks like. Uh, once that's been announced, I'll put something on that fixedcrowncopyright.ca site. We also have have a series of events on February 28th here at the U of A related to Fair Dealing Week. In, and two of the afternoon sessions are going to be focused on the review of the Act. And the last session, in fact, will be Michael McNally talking about how to contribute to the review. Now, obviously, that'll be framed around fair dealing, but mm -hmm. the processes will be the same for providing input about Crown Copyright. So I'm hoping there will be a lot of public input, first and foremost. If you're working at an institution that's a member of the Canadian Association of Research Libraries or the Canadian Federation of Library Associations, I would hope that you would inform your supervisors, inform the people that might be making their own submission or feeding into the association's processes uh, to bring this issue strength that I think it deserves, and it has deserved for decades. Just on the topic of public consultation, my, my general sense from just awareness of other public consultations uh, that in Innovation Science Economic Development Canada have done, CRTC have done, is that they tend to be dominated by uh, large organizations or corporate interests. Do you really think that we have the, the, the gumption to get enough of movement behind something like Crown Copyright, or is that less sexy than fair dealing or, you know, digital locks? <laughs> My whole career has been less sexy than other parts of librarianship. <laughs> uh, I yeah, I hope so. I think I think that there's a really neat opportunity with Crown Copyright because there's a lot of commercial interest too. I mean, this is one of those those things that is is a barrier not 
just to the library archives and museums. It's a barrier to, to corporations as well. And I received so much feedback on this petition from all sectors. So maybe this is one of those issues that hopefully framed correctly and publicized correctly will, will gain the traction needed. But yeah, we're not kidding ourselves here. Nobody has money for lobbyists on this issue. Uh, and, and I mean, I'm doing this off the side of my desk. So the Crown stuff is, is based on um, what I feel is a professional duty. I didn't want to be the one making this case. I just felt like someone needed to do it. Oh, it's my duty. I feel very strongly that it's my responsibility to do this work. It's not, it's not, doesn't come natural. <laughs> is there anything else related to the Crown copyright issue or anything that uh, I forgot to ask you that you wanted to make sure you mentioned? If you aren't already, I'd really encourage you to learn about copyright writ large. Follow Michael Geist's blog. He, he writes very sensibly and with a lot of uh, experience and knowledge on this topic. He's a, a professor at the University of Ottawa. Access to information is at the, you know, the heart of a functioning democracy. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, unfortunately something that people don't think about until it's challenged. Yeah. And we need to work to, to make sure that that doesn't happen. Nice with the clones. Thank you so much. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, this is Shout for Libraries on CJSR, and that's it for today's show. A special thanks to Anu Padihan, a.k.a. Anoop Scoop, who composed our theme music. We hope that you enjoyed today's episode. To have a look at Michelle's sources and suggested further reading on copyright, find the sources mentioned during Chris's interview with Amanda, or to find extra information about this year's upcoming copyright review, you can visit our Facebook page at Shout for Libraries or tell us on Twitter at Shout, the number four, Libraries. Once again, this has been Marin and Michelle, and we have been your hosts for this half hour of Library-Centric Radio. Catch us on the next episode of Shout for Libraries.